Right, let's set some context. I am lying on a broken sun lounger. Was it broken when I got on it? No, it wasn't. Did it break it as I got on it? Yes, it did. Is it made of bamboo, so basically destined to break? I'd say so. So, um, <laughs> currently sat on that at about 10pm at night. I'm coming to you from Krabi, specifically Aonang, Thailand, in the little commune that I'm living in, which has a bunch of little villas uh, surrounding a little pool, which I've not been in yet, um, for less than £20 a night. And it's a very nice place indeed. And um, it's... <laughs> but I, I was... Oh dear, this is somewhat giving way underneath me. Well, in terms of background noise, you can probably hear, uh, well, maybe you can't actually, but you know, like nature sounds, that chirping of whatever that thing is, the do 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 do, uh, that's going on. Um, and then also potentially the sound of, uh, of bamboo crumbling underneath me. So I can see a starry sky uh, and uh, some, so some villas, little, little kind of. Villas made of bamboo. Very cute. I was due to do one of these immediately after I recorded my show at the Pleasance in London, which seems like a lifetime ago, but it was only a few weeks ago. Um, it was in November, and we're now only just in December. And actually, I do remember going back to my flat and starting a recording. I think I got 10 minutes in, giving my reflections on that. And then, you know, the doorbell rang or something happened. And then, you know, that stopped. So I've kind of realised if I if I want to do this, I need to continue to do it in places where I absolutely cannot get like r disturbed. And oh, there we go. Did you hear that? That is um, that is that is the rest of it gone. I'm essentially now lying on the floor. Okay, well, uh, at least I can't go any further down. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so so I got disturbed by. It. Okay, do you know what? Uh, that. That's it now. Okay, that's as far as it's going. It's now it's now not as comfortable. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So I got dist I got distracted. I think the, the other ones of these I've done have been like in uh, places where public transport are and people aren't going to bother me and stuff like that. Um, I don't think anyone's going to come and disturb me here unless uh, whoever is responsible for maintaining the safety and security of this area uh, comes and works out which vandal has vandalised the sun lounges. So. Uh, so I started doing this, uh, started recording one of these, giving reflections on um, the show. And then almost as soon as the show was done, it was basically, I moved all my stuff, uh, went and stored all my stuff in Scotland. And I think I had maybe two, I don't even remember, I think I maybe had two or three more days in the UK. I had one or two gigs, but then basically I was off. I was off, flew to Singapore. And spent four days in Singapore, which was very nice to do. I uh, did a workshop uh, where I taught. I was supposed to be teaching my creativity workshop, which is for more advanced people, people that have done a bit of stand-up and want to get more fluent on stage. What's my main teaching from that? Everyone asks me, how do you do crowd work? How do you improvise on stage? How do you talk to the crowd and make it so funny? And the advice that I give them, which they never want to hear, is what you're doing on stage is you're writing comedy. And if you're not confident in your abilities to write comedy off stage, then don't try and do it in a high pressure environment on stage. And it's advice that no one really wants to hear. They want tricks, right? <laughs> they want, oh yeah, it's easy. You just, you know, if someone says this, just say this. Um, or you could just get in a flow state. And uh, unfortunately, the thing which I have slowly realized over time is 
people that are really good at improvised comedy are just generally really good at comedy. They're really good at joke writing, and they just they just apply those joke writing techniques at speed, um, which I think is what I do. I think I you know most of what I do falls into some kind of patterns uh, that I've already practiced or got good at to a certain degree. Anyway, uh, so I didn't end up teaching that workshop because basically everyone uh, at the workshop was new, you know, less than three months experience. Some people had never done it before. I think one guy had done it for nearly a year, so still basically new. So I did, um, I pulled up the slides from the course that I wrote for the Crackhouse Comedy Club during the lockdown 2020, where everyone wanted to learn how to do comedy on Zoom for something to do. And um, it was nice, actually. It was nice digging out these old materials. I obviously had loads of time. <laughs> you forget how much free time you had during lockdown. So I put loads of... They looked amazing. It was all, like, nicely colour-coordinated, nice graphics. There was clip art, images, well-researched. Um, just slide after... And as I was going through this, I was like, I'm, just, I'm so glad I've passed me. So glad that I did this because I, I, don't think I'd, I don't think I'd do it now. I don't think I'd... Um, uh, well, firstly, I'd, I'd, I'd probably have the imposter syndrome. With, you know, who, who am I to write a course? Particularly after I've now read Adam Bloom's book uh, on stand-up comedy, which is probably as good as, as probably this generation's stand-up comedy bible. I don't think anyone's going to write a book as good. So um, I think if I'd not attempted to write a comedy course before I'd read that, I probably would never bother. But at least that's now done. Um, yeah, so I was very glad. So I so I, I had that on my computer. I said, well, let's just go through this. And this was a six-week course that I wrote, and I managed to get through three of the six weeks with them in the three or four hours I was with them. And it's ba- it was basically teaching them about, uh, I taught them about persona. Basically, I said, look, when you're going to do open mic comedy, don't worry about writing your first Netflix special. You're not writing your a first hour. You're not headlining a show with all this pressure. You're just doing open mic. So, you know, don't go into learning tennis as if you need to emulate Centre Court or Wimbledon. Um, you're just picking up a racket and having fun. And remember that open mics are generally quite bad. Most people are not very good at open mics, so you don't have to try that hard to really shine. And the audience generally knows what they're getting into with open mic. Um, So you've got to really optimise to be interesting rather than to be funny, because at least if you're interesting, you'll hold their attention. So I went through all that kind of stuff. I think think they really liked it. Um, And then looked at persona, you know, jokes kind of coming from you and a place of truth. And then I did the show, and the show was very nice. Uh, didn't sell that many tickets this time, which is a shame because I've sold very well in Singapore before. I don't really feel like I'm. Don't really feel like I've I've held on to that audience as well as I was, uh, I was hoping. Um, definitely people did come back, but not enough to make it seem like you know. I'm not going to be not going to be doing a small theatre there anytime soon. And um, anyway, so then from Singapore, then went on to Thailand, which is where I plan to be for the next month or so. And I just got so sick. I got so, so, so sick. So I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is I should have done all my post-recording my show reflections while I was still in the UK, while I was in that headspace. Because the moment I got on that plane uh, to Singapore, that was it. You know, kind of one way, one way conveyor belt to... Um, to a very different head headspace, and it's and the reason it's taken me this long to even get the recorder going is um it was just in a bag, didn't even bother opening. I was just spent time doing other things. What were those other things? Good question. First week, I was sick. Brilliant. I got. I remember that feeling, that that really ominous feeling you get when your throat starts to tickle and you start to feel a bit tight. It's not really tiredness. It's more like the kind of fatigue, and you just know your body's about to shut down. 
and be sick. And I got this really nasty tingle in my throat. And I knew I was going to have to take a flight. And whenever you take a flight with any kind of throat or sinus issues, you just know it's going to exacerbate it because of the pressure or the air corn or whatever else. And I remember arriving in Thailand with a really dry mouth after the flight and, and kind of feeling, you know, kind of wishing that the the flight was still going. You know, I just, I didn't want to get off it and confront having to then do the day. And then um, I booked a, a, a transfer from the airport to where I was staying. They were going to sort it out for me. And then the, the you know, there's that sea of people with the signs. And I was looking for my name and there wasn't one. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. So they'd obviously forgotten or whatever. I'd been scammed or, you know, a problem. So I text uh, the person who was arranging it and they didn't get back to me for about 45 minutes in that time. So I was just waiting for about for well over half an hour going, okay, well, what am I doing? And uh, in the end, I thought, well, I'll just I'll book a separate place to stay for the night and sort this out tomorrow. I really can't be bothered. And I got a message from them saying, hey, the driver was booked for the wrong day. You know, just get a cab. I'll pay you back kind of thing. So anyway, so I eventually checked it. And then I, then I went to the seventh local convenience store and I just knew I needed a bunch of potions. So I bought like chocolate milk, which is what I always buy when I'm sick. And... Um, bunch of tablets because it was all in Thai so I just looked for stuff that like generally looked like it was vaguely sinus relief or vaguely you know good for the throat or the headache and I got those those Japanese um head cooling things you know you like there's like a strip that you put on your head so I just kind of bought all this medicinal stuff knowing that I'd need it and then um yeah I had a, just the most awful night's sleep it was you know the fever just happened and then the next day, I was like, right, that's it. I am sick, and it's bad. And my throat was really, really, really sore. Couldn't swallow anything without it really hurting. Um, and so I thought, right, well, here we go. I'm by myself. Um, and it's the, 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 these, the, the very few moments where traveling alone does feel a bit lonely. Because um, if, I, if I was here with a partner, they would have sorted all this out, or family. But instead, I'm like, right, okay, well, here we go. So I found the number of someone that can get me a moped because there's not really any public transport or you know, there isn't really like e-hailing uh, in um, in Krabby either. You've just kind of like got to hail down a tuk-tuk or um, I don't really know what people do, but where I'm staying is pretty remote. Um, it's like off a main road. And so I, I knew I had to get a form of transport. So I, I WhatsApped someone that said that they knew someone that could rent me a motorbike and thankfully thailand is this way that you just need to whatsapp a guy and it will get sorted <laughs> literally within an hour in fact less than that 20 minutes just a guy turns up <laughs> with, a, with a little moped he sent me a picture he said what do you think of this moped i said it looks great how much i said is that your best price he said no i can do cheaper i said great well have that price then please and then turned up did he check if I had a driving license? Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> did he? Did he take any form of deposit? I don't know. He don't think he did. No, he didn't. Uh, mad. Yeah, I think he took a photograph of my passport or something. But anyway, got this little moped and drove myself to a hospital. Hospital started getting worried. I had an infectious disease. Decided that was a one-way street. I didn't fancy going down. So then I went to a little private clinic. Paid. The equivalent of about twenty-five pounds to see a doctor, a doctor in a string vest, um, which is um, <laughs> it's, it's fairly confronting when you walk into a uh, consultation room and just see just a just a bloke chilling out in a string vest. 
Um, I presume he was a doctor. And he certainly, certainly convinced me. Uh, told me that it was streptococcus or something, most likely. He said he said either you're going to recover in five days or you're going to recover in a month. He said if it's glandular fever, it's going to take you a long time. And I've had glandular fever before and I hoped it wasn't. But he gave me some antibiotics and a bunch of other things. And uh, yeah, 25 quid later, I was off on my merry way. And then spent about three days doing what you have to do when you're really sick, which is just force yourself to rest and drink loads and loads and loads of water and just feel like rubbish. And as this was happening, every single morning, the Muay Thai uh, camp, which I was... Well, it's not really a camp, you know, it's just a training ground. It's next to a boxing stadium and it's where people go to train, which I was supposed to be participating in, was just happening and I could hear it. They were waking me up every morning. I thought, oh, this is confronting. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, eventually I, I did get better. So that was that was kind of all-consuming. Uh, and then I got better, started doing this training, and um, all in the meantime, everything else didn't really stop. You know, I still had a whole, bu- whole bunch of emails to deal with. Um, one of the people that we employ uh, at RGB Monster, my production company, uh, they had some. They had a family issue that meant they had to take a month off, and then in the end they quit r- rather than coming back. So that just created a whole, you know, whole heap of issues. On the one hand, you want to be sympathetic and be the best employee you can be, which just means you know, be generous, give them benefit of the doubt, blah blah blah. But also, um, while you can absolutely feel sorry for their personal circumstances, I think it's equally fine to feel a bit annoyed. Um, <laughs> as as a impossibly small business doing a difficult thing, just investing loads of time and energy in someone, um, and then have them leave during their probation period for perfectly understandable circumstances and totally fine thing to do. Nevertheless, when viewed through my lens and my needs, um, that was literally the last thing I wanted to be dealing with. Because uh, it's not just the kind of sunk cost of investing in someone and bringing them into the team. It's all then the shit which they were supposed to be doing. Other people then have to do and other people seems to be me. And then finding someone new. Right, pain. So then, you know, all that was then brewing and then I have my accountants were worried about my tax return. So I just stuff was going on. And that's it. You know, kind of everything that was happening in the UK which just kind of became a bit of a distant memory. So, uh never got round to, to catching up on, on recording the reflections from the show so that is what I was doing right now uh, in the remaining 15 minutes of this episode of this diary entry I recorded my third full hour of stand-up comedy which is called Ollie Horn, Not Much and it's a show that in the end I'm quite proud of um, I didn't know if I'd have a new show in me and of course you have to think that until you have one and the show, the kind of marketing hook was I was talking about all the worst gigs I've ever done. But then the B plot of the show was me talking about some domestic abuse that I was exposed to and feeling sad and therapy and all that kind of stuff. And then a C plot um, about me meeting Joe Pasquale and him giving me some unlikely advice. So um, the show ended up coming together quite well. Uh, during the Fringe, it really there was a couple of shows where I really thought, oh God, this is it. I've got it. I've really, you know, got a great show and I've really entertained these people. Um, it's a very rare feeling. Very rare feeling to really feel like uh, I am 
I am it. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I am uh, the comedian that they've legitimately booked tickets to see, and I've given them a great show. And one or two times during the fringe, during my 25 date run, I really, I've really felt that. I genuinely felt like a couple. I mean, a couple of the shows, I cried at the end. I was just so happy. I was so happy. It just everything worked. All the stories resonated. The audience got it. People were coming to see me. Who'd see me during previous years, and they, and they, you know, they were the ones who were most invested. Or people that had seen me do spots and were really excited to watch me. All that matters so much. The quality of the audience really, really, really matters. And the longer I've done this, more the more I've realised that the quality of the audience I am also responsible for. You know, it's so easy to kind of blame a bad crowd or blame you know whatever right um but you know if you, even if you have just two or three fans in the front row who give a really big whoop when you're announced on stage that makes a massive difference and it's you know it's 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 um it's something that i need to be responsible for i need people to be uh excited about coming to see my shows i think that's really important because uh, if even if two or three people are excited and the rest are totally indifferent um that, you know the people that are indifferent will at least be curious as to why there's a couple of people that are excited about the show so anyway i had a couple of just absolute stonkers really lovely I had one terrible one my very last one my last one was crap don't know why um and um it's embarrassing when you have a bad one in that bad one i had two people come to see me one uh i i, mean, I make this joke a lot and it's obviously you know, it's a trite thing to say, but I do have you know I have fans, but only to the extent to which that like, I can still recognise them all. And so there's there's someone I think she's a she's a an influencer. She's like a gamer because I followed her back on Instagram. She came to see me a year or two ago, and we exchanged a couple of messages. And then she said she was going to come back and see me, and she came on that show. And it's just I just felt embarrassed. I felt embarrassed that she'd come back and seen something so bad. And a comedian, Milo Edwards, who's my friend, he came to watch that day. And obviously he's a friend, so he's not going to say it was shit, but it was. Um, or at least he could probably, as a comedian, see what the show was supposed to be. And really feel like, you know, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to think about it. I wasn't very proud. Um, but generally, the show was good, despite the fact that I was doing a million other shows at the festival. That hour always seemed to, to resonate. Anyway, the show's quite tough to do. And obviously, you know, stand-up, nothing's tough. But I do talk about uh, a, a dicey uh, domestic situation. And it's just something which I've learned that I don't generally want to think about in my life. And I kind of want to to move on. Uh, and one of the things I say in the show, which always seems to get a laugh, even though people don't really know why they're laughing, is one of the kind of things I taught myself after doing therapy was if you're feeling sad because you're trying to change the people around you you've got to change the people around you and you know, that kind of has the cadence of a joke so people laugh and then they realize it's not actually that funny um so i'm trying to you know i have kind of changed the people around me and the people that were um causing me to be sad um i don't uh i just don't let them anymore um but the sh in the show i mentioned you know I, I'm f I'm reasonably good at, at um, obfuscating some details, and I think anyone that knows me personally or knows a bit more about the situation will know that what I'm saying is truthful, but not giving the whole picture. 
Um, that's mainly because I have got a comedy show, and also you know, I talk. I talk about. Um, actually, I talk in the show about going to Thailand to do a gig. The final story of the show is me gigging in a. Um, just doing a bad, doing a, ba- a bad gig, and that gig was actually in Phuket, but I said it was in Krabi, which is where I am now, uh, just to protect the identity of someone. Um. Anyway. So the show was in a decent place by the end of the festival, apart from the last one, and the the funny routines of the show I I practiced because I did a a little European tour. I went to a bunch of cities in the Netherlands and Austria and Barcelona, a couple of others, and I made sure in all of those shows it was a kind of a I I didn't want to tour this show. I didn't well for a couple of reasons. One. He's got loads of Joe Pasquale jokes in and no one knows who he is outside the, outside the UK. And he's a he's a funny person to mention within the constraints of the UK because he's obviously very well known. Like he's still famous, um, but he's still got but he's got this kind of nostalgic quality as well, which is why he's so nice to talk about. Um but you know, that just doesn't travel internationally. Uh, and also I didn't want to dig up this trauma every night. So the f- the the kind of the three key routines about the the funny Funny stories of the bad gigs. I made sure to practice them on tour, ready for the filming. And then when the filming happened, the one routine which I couldn't really practice, which was the one about going to therapy, I did kind of fuck up. I remember during the show I forgot some bits and I went back and added those bits later in the show. And I guess the audience wouldn't quite notice, but there's definitely, I think a comic can watch this and see that part didn't quite flow. And then at the end of the recording I did what are called pickups where you you redo bits which need either other camera angles or oh, just re-recording that was a nice big yawn wasn't it this is very, very much nighttime vibes um and uh, so i tried to do that routine again obviously it's not as funny second time around because the audience have heard it and also i still forgot the end so um and the reason i forgot the end actually is because i've I realized that routine doesn't really have a proper ending i just um i kind of brute force moving on to the next bit um, with a couple of tricks, and I just forgot I forgot which tricks I did. So uh, I haven't seen the edit, but I know I'll kind of cringe at that bit. But generally, I think I recorded the show as good as it needs to be. You know, was it the best performance ever? No. Was it was it a great audience? Yes, it was. That's of note. The audience I got was phenomenally good. Uh, why? Because a handful of friends, uh, at least four, uh, I think four or five people were friends. Uh, and then I had um, my agent, and she brought somebody, newly signed agent, so she was very excited to see me. Well, <laughs> she said she was excited to see me, and then she was like, this better be good. I don't want to have to drop you after seeing this, which is a funny joke, but also you do internalise those, those kind of things. Um, and then a lot of people who'd seen me before, so there was even people that had seen the show in Edinburgh that came back to see it, and... A bunch of people. I'd done loads of gigs at Top Secret, loads of emceeing, and you really build a connection with people there when you emcee. And I did really well. There was a couple of shows at Top Secret which were just just felt really special, and so I plugged the show, and people came off the back of that, and they were really excited to see me. You know, it was the kind of thing where like they were telling their friends, "Oh, you got to see this guy." You know, we we saw him, and he was brilliant, and. That creates such a good energy. Unfortunately, what I was doing at Top Secret, which was very improvisational and silly and, you know, involving the crowd, is nothing like what they paid to see uh, at the Pleasance because it's a storytelling show where I literally don't talk to the crowd at all. But I think they still had a nice time. Uh, but that combination of 
I don't like using the word, but fans, people that had seen me before and enjoyed my comedy, they're fans. Um, actually, there's one couple, lovely couple, who have seen me loads. They, they, they saw me during the, the weird post-COVID fringe where they kind of saw every comic a dozen times because there was a small pool of us. And they've come back and seen me every year and they, they came to that show and then they came to my work in progress. Um, it's lovely. It's like really nice. <laughs> they just seem like a nice couple that enjoy comedy and just like mine. And it's just very, very sweet, very humbling. Uh, lovely thing to happen. And uh, I don't know how... I actually don't know how that scales because like, I really care about the fact they turn up. You know, when I was in the bar before the show, I wasn't supposed to be there, but I, I walked through and I spotted them and I kind of made a point of going, oh, hey, great to see you. Thanks for coming. Um, I hope I can at least have, as as the audience does scale, which we hope and plan that it does, um, I hope I can kind of have that same um, gratitude, if not the same actual dynamic. I think it's impractical to know everybody and know everyone's story, but yeah, very, very, very nice. So anyway, the point was the audience couldn't actually have been better. You know, they were, before the show started, I had to, I did a bit of like housekeeping and told them about the cameras and, and that kind of thing. And even just that pre-show bit was really funny. So, so I knew, I knew, you know, I knew we were onto, onto a great thing. Uh, it's just, it's lovely. Just a lovely to have that energy in the room where people are just up for a great time. And so everything I said was funny. And, um, yeah, anyway, so the show went about as well as it could do, I think. Uh, I am just glad that it's been documented and I can move on. And I remember reading Joe Lysett say something about how the last show he did, he says, oh, I don't think I'll never make anything as good as that again. I think that's a really sad thing to think. And I really, as much as I'm proud of the show and as much as these stories do seem like once-in-a-lifetime stories, um... I hope that I will write a better show than that. I hope I will make people laugh even more than during that show. And so I don't want to be too precious. I don't want to go, well, let's wait and film it again in a bigger venue in another year. Or let's, you know, I've done it. It's done. It's filmed. Um, and yeah, I'm pleased. I mean, it's the kind of show which doesn't need to be clipped up into lots of little clips. It, it is a standalone thing. And I think Next Up is the right place for that. Um, they might try and farm it out to other places, but I think next up is is the 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 right fit for this show. Um, yeah, I'm proud of it. And my, I guess one of my main lessons from working from doing that show is I've always been really suspicious about working with professionals or outsourcing things. I've I've done so much DIY, right? So much of my comedy career has been, you know, literally setting up my own comedy club in Japan or setting up my own production company in Edinburgh or doing things at the free festival in Edinburgh where you're very heavily involved in the production and front of house and, and whatever marketing. And, you know, I've never, uh, I never really considered that while I saw it as a bit of a badge of honor that I was quite indie uh, in that regard, uh, it does hold you back. And I think partly the, the reason I didn't want to like work with other people is the people that I was surrounded with <laughs> often weren't that good. Uh, but doing this show at the Pleasance, the Pleasance is a little theatre in Islington, London, and I was doing the room above the main theatre, the little box room. Um, but still, 
run by absolute professionals, right? Like I had a very specific idea of how I wanted the background to look with some lighting. And we brought some lighting and we just said, hey, look, we brought our own lighting. And they were like, yeah, great. It's compatible. Let's get it set up. And, you know, they were up a ladder helping rig things and connecting it to their systems. And, you know, just even like 15 minutes before we were due to open the house, I realized that I didn't quite like the look of some of the lighting. It was like I, I wanted the room to feel very warm. I wanted oranges and uh, and a warm shade. And uh, there was a couple of lights which I thought, oh, that might look a bit harsh. So I said, look, I know we're about to start, but is it possible to change those gels from a blue to a uh, uh, an off-white? Um Yes, I know what a gel is. And it was just like, yeah, we can, you know. And so just like, we're just working with a bunch of people who like are completely incentivized to make the show great for you. That's fantastic. And they're working with the camera crew too. The director, Tom, said to me, he said, look, you're, you need to be worried about putting on a great show. We'll be worried about capturing it. Which was a really nice thing to say. Um, I don't think he meant it in a like, stay out of our business way. He meant it as like, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on and it's not your job, you know, we, it's our job to worry about that. And if there's a problem, we're going to let you know kind of thing. And it is it's it is nice to work with people who are so sure of what they're doing and are like, you know, just they are just better at it than I will ever be. And uh, you know, the working with people like this are, are a huge accelerant. And I think as I've slowly, very, very slowly moved up the ranks and played these venues, I've started to kind of see more how... Um, yeah, this this idea that like my identity was tied to knowing how to do everything, like I'd know how to program the lights, I'd know how to set up the sound, I'd know how to operate a video camera. Uh, helpful, useful. It means I can, you know, like those skills are good. Um, but the best thing I can do for myself is hyper specialize on one thing, and that needs to be fantastic stand up comedy. <laughs>